I don't know if you've ever got that stuff in your eyes or your nose. Oh, it's, like pep- it's, no. it's like pepper spray. And oh, uh, he immediately fell down and threw up. <laughs> and then this, a bunch of the security guard tried to tackle me. So I just kept spraying it until I basically disappeared like a fucking Bond villain. And then uh, and the whole stage disappeared in dust. And then I rolled like a barrel until I fell off the side of the stage because I could hear people screaming to get me. And I bust my shoulder in and then I ran outside the hangar and I dived under a petrol generator and cracked my head open. And then I hid under there for about 15 minutes while a gang of security and the promoter ran around trying to kick the shit out of me. <laughs> and then the stage shut down. The CDJs wouldn't work. And then uh, I got a ride out of the venue and m- mostly avoided everyone except a couple of security that managed to like almost fight me. Uh, and then eventually I had to pay to replace the CDJs after a very lengthy email chain, which was, in hindsight, all very embarrassing. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, Editor-in-Chief of the Unst.com, Bill's manager, and uh, sorry, it's been a while. Self-releasing an album is hard work, and it takes a long-ass time to get everything in order. Appreciate all the support on Phantasmagoria. Please keep sharing it around because, as Bill says, we don't have a big label swinging dick helping us out here, so every little bit helps. We'll have more news to share on the album as things progress. In order to make up for the prolonged absence, we have a huge guest on deck for you today. John Gooch is a goddamn legend. He changed the drum and bass game as Spore and then went and changed the electro game as Feed Me. His self-titled album is out now on his Soto Voce label, and it's even getting made into cassettes. Bill and John chat about a bunch of cool shit, and they'll actually be sharing the main stage together at Infrasound at the end of the month, so that's cool. That's a Spore date for John, but he's got a bunch of Feed Me live dates coming up the rest of the fall throughout America. You can see all of those dates at feedme.uk.com. If you're a Patreon member, you're getting the show a week early. Thanks for all your support. We appreciate your hanging in there with us. We'll set up some cool perks for you now that we're back. Finally, head over to MrBillTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore Abletoneer. Bill is back making tutorials now that a bulk of the album release grind is done. More goodies landing there soon. That's all for me. Enjoy Bill's chat with Feed Me. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 cool man well thanks for coming on so yeah really cool to chat with you you're welcome thanks for having me absolutely yeah i've been a huge fan since um since the the spore days like the i remember when (laughs) um that lifted ep came out or whatever with e1 in like 2008 
and I remember just like sitting in my car at a McDonald's in Australia, just like just eating a fucking Big Mac or whatever, being like this and stoned out of my mind or something, just being like, fuck, this is so sick. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks very much. I love your tunes as well. So it's nice to get to talk to you. Thanks. Yeah, we've actually met once before and it was when I was about 18 years old. Um, you played at Herman's Bar, I believe it was, in Sydney. And I met uh, you and Jake Ewan uh, slash Kill the Noise uh, after the show. It was, yeah, great show. It was sick. Um, so, yeah, you, you were like a, a big part of my like sort of initial uh, like influences. Oh, well, thank you. Um so yeah, man. So your your management just lined all this up, and I was stoked that they reached out. Uh, and yeah, you've just put out a new album. Uh, why why the choice to self title it? By the way, uh, is this is this the podcast starting? By the way, or oh, it's it's this, started. This, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're we're, we're going. Didn't give me a cue. I wasn't sure if we were like setting up still or if we were going. Oh uh, uh, yeah, we're we're going. Uh, basically, th this this podcast is like it's not super like you know by the book like question by question. It's just conversational. So like, gotcha. you know. oh that's fine. Yeah, I just uh, just double check in. Yeah, I prefer uh, it that way. I kind of fucking hate it when like you know they're like, well, so and, like it's just one question after the other, and it's always yeah, like the yeah. same questions. It's like, how, how did you come up with your name? And like you know, so what's yeah, on I the give, books I give next? A lot of stiffer answers if I'm in that situation as well. I've found. Yeah, so, so I better just rambling. Yeah, uh, let's let's ramble. <laughs> the uh, self-titled because um, it just felt like the most uh, direct connection I'd made to the project, I suppose, from my point of view. Like once I'd finished it, I didn't feel like it needed a title to put it under a like a sub umbrella. It already felt um, just like ready. So. With that in mind, it was, uh, yeah, it was it was an easy it was an easy decision at the time. Yeah, I actually kind of feel similarly about my latest album uh, that just came out like two days ago. Um, although I didn't self-title it, but I do feel like it's maybe the closest connection I made to the project, and I think that was like a big attribution to uh, quarantine and not having shows, right? Because like when you have shows as like an obligation, a lot of the time in the studio you're like, "Fuck, I got to make something that's like going to make the dance floor pop, and I got to make something that's like mixable." Like you know, oh shit, I need more stuff in that that tempo range, so maybe let me make something that in that, at that tempo. And, and and at that stage, you've already like cornered yourself into like a little box at least. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that. I I definitely concur. I also think the longer with lockdown that I was away from touring, the more I'm just sort of lost in my own imagination. And touring becomes like a sort of uh, nostalgia rather than a direct memory that you're still processing from two days ago, you know? And so being in the studio and having this sort of dreamlike feeling of touring rather than being in and out of the airport back and forth and trying to punctuate my uh, studio time around that. Uh, I just had like, just open-ended studio time. It was easy to uh, just sort of go with that. And, and, and it, I think it was uh, definitely enhanced to what I did creatively. It just, just sort of improved my flow, I suppose. Nice. Yeah, that's great. I kind of, I found the same thing. So another thing I found is without that punctuation of shows on the weekend, I didn't have like a per se deadline and therefore I had like no reason to be like, fuck, I've got to finish this like quickly, you know? And I think, uh, having those deadlines is, is, you know, 
kind of important sometimes to drive you to finish things if you have like unlimited creative time which we both did i guess or every a lot of artists felt like they did if they were in a financial position to do so um uh it kind of like leaves you in this position of, of uh just like oh i can you know just sit around and think about this track for as long as i want and I don't know. I found like I wasn't getting as quite as much finished, but um, but I was much I was comfortable with it still. I started out uh, very much like that when I started making tracks. Like you were talking about the lifted stuff, I I I would have happily continued working on that for ten years, and it was only because I had label people around me who were like aggressively pushing me to finish and hand stuff in, um, that I ever got anything done. So. As time's gone on, I've become better at sort of drawing a line under tracks and deciding when they're done. I don't like feeling like I'm lingering on them anymore. So, but a few years ago, I don't think that would have been the case. That's taken me a long time personally uh, to sort of, I guess, be at peace with stuff I've made and like just let it go sometimes, even if it's imperfect. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> at what point have you like... Um... Have you specifically kind of uh, identified uh, what point it is that you call or decide that something is finished? I suppose you would always have like a progress. Perhaps you're the same. I don't know. I'd have to ask. But I, I have like a projection in my mind of what I want it to feel like when I hear the track, like the sort of <laughs> the uh, the finished sketch. And and uh, so so there's of the obvious reference point of is this what I imagined it to be, but on top of that, when the rate of progress slows down, I start wondering if it's time to see if I can remove things from the track and it retains the same energy. Like, have I overfilled it? Can I, like, pare it back down? Um, and if it seems to strike a balance where everything's about in its right place, um, then I'll try and... Now I try and, like, bounce down to stems and just move on to sort of final edits and mastering and stuff and put it behind me um unless it unless i come back a couple of weeks later with an absolute must that needs changing i'll try and close the door on that section and move you know move on from that point i guess that would be my process now interesting it's yeah it's in, uh it's interesting that you like get to a point where you like remove a lot of stuff uh and it's also yeah in, interesting that you render stems at the end I pretty much never do either of those things. I, I I used to render stems, and the reason I did it is because um I can't remember who said it, but like uh, violating space is fun. You know, if you have reverb that like just cuts off into silence, it sounds mm -hmm. like uh, it kind of like peaks your ear every single time because we're like so unused to like the the reverb of a room ever just like stopping because mm -hmm. uh, that would equal how the fuck would that even happen you'd have to you'd die be dead but or I, something yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> uh yeah so i found uh i used to stem stuff for that reason but now i just do that shit through like utility mute buttons and stuff like that or just you know following more oh yeah i mean for muting i've got a mute channel and you know automation on pretty much everything and i'll always play with you know flicking them on and off um it's something I always found I used to do when people would come in the studio and listen to a track and I'd quickly solo a stem and then flick everything back in and then just to show them what an element was doing and then inevitably you find yourself thinking, well, why doesn't it do that every time? Why am I just doing it to show this person? It's, it, you know, it's, it's nice to sort of give elements their chance to breathe or solo them or take them away. 
Uh, but yeah, stemming is more down to being able to uh, work on the track l at a later date or submit stems to publishing or remixes and also port them to different programs for live performance and stuff, which inevitably over the years I found I've had to go back to tracks and, you know, get them working again in order to get stems out. And it's always a painful process and it's much easier to get all that done up front now. So I try and print things down. And also like just before, especially with this last album, some of the stems I ran through tape and things like that, just to see if I could get different coloration on as if I was approaching it as the master and engineer, someone that didn't have access to the full track and was trying to bring a bit more out of what was already presented. Mm. Uh, so I did a bit of that too. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I noticed the latest album kind of had a lot of that French house influence, which also kind of has that tapey sort of like noisy vibe to it, you know, like old Sebastian stuff and like old mm. Ed Banger stuff and, you know, like Daft Punk, obviously, and Justice. It all kind of has that like really noisy, thick sort of tapey vibe to it. Is that, um, are you inspired uh, by that sort of French house stuff a, a little bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Probably more than most other, um, electronic music I suppose for that sound I, I mean I also listen to a lot of gritty noisy lo-fi music I always have done and whether whether that means old vinyl and old rec rock records and stuff or um you know deliberately lo-fi sounding bands and things like that uh and the, the squash and I, I've always loved in that sort of the French style how how much the dynamics are a character element of the music. It's not just done to make the track loud. Like that's not the principal goal. It's it's to create a feeling. Um, so I've the longer I've gone on, the more I've tried to hone that aspect of my work. Yeah, I, I agree. Though I think um, yeah, it's interesting when styles of music intentionally uh, add like distortion and noise and stuff to things. Like you see that on SoundCloud a lot these days. I find where um like these kids are intentionally just like overly distorting their 808s and whatnot uh, in that, I guess, like what's the, uh, what would you call the style? F f I don't know, future, whatever, bass music, whatever these 18-year-old fucking geniuses seem to be doing. <laughs> They're, uh, you know, got this uh, extra I, distorted I seen some 808 stuff and they kind of just build that into the track where... Yeah, I, some of it I think started because people were playing you know, like viral videos where the music was just cranked through a gain. Mm. So it would deliberately sound smashed as it just for the sort of like meme comedy effect of a track coming in like that. I remember like the water bottle videos all had that when people were flipping bottles over and when it landed, the bass would like kick in, but it was gained up like a hundred decibels. And I think some people now like that's, that's fed back into people's production. They want that sort of oversaturated sound because, and it's, it's, uh, you've got sort of deliberate destruction feeding back into people's creative process. Um, yeah. Which is, which is awesome. I mean, I think it's cool that some, you know, some people had the, um, audacity and the, uh, um, I don't know what the word would be like the, the creative insight to be like, you know what, fuck it. Like I'm actually going to like intentionally do that. Like make it sound like an MP3 or make it sound like a, you know, a distorted phone video for a second or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I love that sort of thing. It's, um, I'm very much, Although I enjoy like the pursuit of fidelity in a sort of tech way, like I like, I like, I'm interested in it. Um, but artistically, I don't think ultra fidelity is always that useful. I think um, 
it doesn't seem to me that people enjoy listening to that subconsciously. When there's coloration and noise and things like that, I think people tend to enjoy themselves more. Um, yeah, totally. Having said that, um, like when you produce, do you, like when you're in your mix down phase or your mastering phase, are you generally trying to go for cleanliness or are you, are you trying to go for sort of like this balance between cleanliness and color? I suppose things like vocals and stuff, I try and make sure I, I, I've, I've spent a while putting together a nice vocal chain for people to sing into that I know that I can, you know, basically shorten my workflow and, and lower my workload because the, the signal comes in nicely compressed and, and like ready to go. So that aspect and recording guitars and stuff, I go for a good recording, but um, if, if, objects are inherently noisy like a tape machine and things like that i don't try and cancel that out i leave it in there i like i like the sound and if it stacks up a bit that doesn't really bother me um i remember watching years ago uh god knows where it's from it was like a tape of dillinger in the studio and he was showing how he made some like drum and bass basses by just absolutely smashing things through a desk that was clearly not did not designed to do that and not only that that he was monitoring it in mono through one speaker that was like bashed in the other side of the room. And the track he was making was like incredible. Uh, like I've always thought back to that. Like he's work, he's working on like a tracker, a destroyed desk and a bashed in single speaker. And at that time he was way outperforming anything I was capable of. And I, I thought, if that's not inspiration, that fidelity isn't the answer, then what is? Like, I, there was so much vibe and, and feeling in what he was doing, and it just sounded right. And you know, as the bass disappeared through the desk, this enormous wall of hiss and noise came up in its place as that was being displaced by the signal. I love that sort of effect. Damn, that's sick. It's cool that you took that from it. That you took uh, not fidelity is like. Or like, you know, fidelity is not necessarily like the be all and end all of music production. And instead the the information that you, you seem to take from that was that coloration and like just you can work through any fucked up gear equals that's totally fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Because definitely. I find I, I've kind of gone the other way with my thinking with shit like that. Whenever I see like that, I'm like, damn, now I need like a bashed in speaker and a desk so I can like get that same thing going <laughs> on. <laughs> Using tapes and I've got a thing called a, a bow mixing thing that I... I got cheap secondhand to try out i've got a culture vulture which is like a valve distortion unit you know mm -hmm. i'm sure you're familiar with all these i don't know if anyone listening is but yep. things that are deliberately designed to color the signal in a uh sort of non-linear way and um also they're all quite hard to use exactly the same every time and i like that inherent unrepeatability to recording uh rather than mm, yeah that kind of like Oh, sorry. Yeah, like that kind of like random fidelity almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I see you have a modular system behind you. If you use the um, Erica systems, um, fuck, I can't remember what it's called. It's like that distortion with the little uh, electricity valve in it. What is oh, that well, the, well, it like flashes like lightning. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, a couple of people I know have got it. I haven't got one. It does look incredibly cool in like a Van de Graaff way. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually going to ask, um, like you have a, a lot of songs, like for instance, um, Cost Fiver, Had a Tenor, or like, <laughs> um, you know, a bunch of other songs that have like sort of like these live slap bass fills in them. 
uh, or like just it might just be live bass or whatever. Do you like go out of your way to actually record those or do you generally just find like nice contact sample packs or just nice samples in general? I, I record them. I've got, I think it's back there. I've got a um, uh, Gareth Pendulum actually lent me a five string bass, which I've never given back. uh which is what a lot of it's done with it just uh yeah i i basically it's a combination of uh playing along just to like grooves i've written and i'll just leave it recording and then you you know i'm not a a comp uh a very good bassist but i can play it so uh every now and again i'll hit something that sounds good um, and then also manipulate what I've recorded after. I don't mind pitching it around or reversing it even. Uh, but I, I, most of the tracks on the album have at least six stems of guitar, live percussion. A lot of the drums are recorded live, even though they no longer sound like that. Um, I bought some really crap drums and uh, just tried to destroy them, basically, and record them in different ways around the house just to see if I could get I wanted to maintain the feeling I'd had with the last albums, but I wanted to look back on it and think a lot of that came out of this room and things I recorded in here, even if the end product was quite a distance from, uh, you know, what you would have expected. Yeah, I think about that stuff. uh, I always have this kind of like in a monologue argument with myself where I'm like, hmm, do I need to like actually make every sound if the sound in the end that I'm going to make sounds just like a thing I could get off splice in a second anyway. And what I've kind of come to the conclusion of is the reason I like doing it all myself is just because I like that feeling of ownership over it. Uh, yeah. versus like, if you just get the thing off splice, there's some anxiety there of being like, oh, I don't really feel like I did my due diligence here. Probably. And also you probably, you know, if something's your own, you'll treat it better. Right. I think you'll, you'll have a personal connection with it. So you'll be less likely to abuse it or or throw it away or it, it definitely enhances your relationship with a re- if you recorded those hits yourself or those those pieces i think um they're going to be more considered and also more valued through throughout the process uh and and if that puts you even in just a one percent better mood for the rest of the song that's also got some some value because it sort of knocks on i think Mm. Uh, like I can come back a week later and hear a couple of those bass slaps, for example, that I put in, and I think, ah, oh, that was worth the effort of, you know, all these blisters. <laughs> like I'm right, right. Re-le- relearn the bass for a week to get them in, and then I think, yeah, it was worth it. I, I'm pleased with how they came out. So yeah, there's definitely inherent value. Yeah, I find when I do that kind of stuff as well, like spend a lot of effort recording a drum or spend a lot of effort recording some like getting a sound myself rather than just getting it off splice or whatever. Uh, I, I find that I have, um, I have to be very weary or careful of, um, sunk cost fallacy where I'm like, I've invested X amount of effort. So I like, I can't, you know, I can't not use it now, you know, cause I've like, right. I mean, it took, I had to go like for a drive out to this place and like record a thing and like, you know, that I've put too much effort into this sound for it to not be used, even if it's like not really working. Right, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, you do have to be willing to... to. I, I did... Part of what I did on this album a lot was sort of deliberately destroy things that I'd recorded. So um, I, I, growing up, I was the sort of person that hoarded everything and catalogued and kept all my songs accessible and, and kept all the plugins working. And as I've got older, I've, I'd get stuff printed down, I get it sort of recorded in, and then I'm... 
I, I tend to like just make peace with that and move on. And um, if something needs to be destroyed in order for me to carry on, or I, I, I guess I could probably equate this with visual art stuff I do as well. Like I used to be very meticulous with my drawing, but I've, as I've gone on, I'll, I'll paint something now and then throw paint over it and sort of uh, reconstitute the work and add layers of uh, patina to the work in, in a way that I, that I would have been very scared of doing when I was younger in case I sort of ruined something. Uh, so I try not to overattach. I, I wasn't suggesting I like by recording your own stuff, you, you're going to be scared to remove it because you think, oh, I put so much time into doing that. Like, yeah, it's good to be able to say it isn't just working on your own, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's, I, <laughs> I had an experience like this yesterday at the airport um, where there was an ex extremely long line. It was like a mile and a half long uh, of, of security. You were at line. an airport? Yeah, I was at DIA Denver Airport yesterday flying back from a show. So Wow. Yeah. It's and, been a long and, time for me. I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> what was it like? <laughs> well, it was September 12th, right? So that's the day after September 11. And yeah. um, I don't know, man, for some reason it was, it was a uh, Sunday afternoon. So there was a shitload of people, sorry, a Sunday morning. So there was a shitload of people traveling because they were probably traveling back from doing some shit on the weekend. Mm. Uh, and the security line at Denver airport was literally like a mile long at both North and South security. It was fucking crazy. And I, I have like uh, clear and shit, so I can kind of like skip the line. And to get a clear membership, I, I think it only costs like a hundred bucks. And I had this thought, I was like, all of these people could just pay a hundred bucks to get out of this situation right now and are not doing it. And I believe it's for the same sunk, sunk cost fallacy reason, because they've probably been standing in that line for like 30 minutes. And then they're like, well, I don't want to get out of line now because then if I like go and try and get the clear thing and then it doesn't work, then I've like lost my spot in line. And it's like, I've, I've invested too much in the line. You know, I've got to stay in the line. Yeah. Yeah. English people love queuing. They'll queue for no reason. If, if, you, if three friends stand in a row somewhere, then people will just, they'll just join behind you, assuming that there's a purpose. I, uh, that's, it's crazy. Uh, queuing in airports is, I guess, anyone that tours is it. You'll do anything to avoid it. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Fuck if I, I can't. So I can't get TSA pre or global entry or whatever because I'm um, I'm uh, Australian, mm -hmm. uh, and it's apparently not possible to get TSA pre if you're not a citizen. And then the global entry thing. There's like a list of 13 countries or something that are that are not able to get it. And it's like Chad and like Nigeria and like Albania and like all these like weird, oh not weird countries, but like all these kind of like you know random countries. And then for some reason Australia as well. Um, oh damn, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so that that fucking sucks. But yeah, uh, surely I don't know if, if anyone's listening to this podcast and knows how I can get global entry. Fucking hit me up. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so, awful. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> You've reminded me to sort mine out though. <laughs> dude yeah should, should i get back on a plane again anyway fingers crossed yeah well yeah i mean speaking of touring like i remember uh a while ago you went through like this phase of tweeting and shit of being like i'm quitting music and i don't want to tour anymore and and all this kind of stuff um but now obviously like you you know you, you you haven't quit music and like you have toured since and stuff so what was like the whole thought process there well i suppose from the outside you look eternally like an ultra confident uh, machine that's built for touring and 
is constantly at shows. And I did hundreds and hundreds of shows when I started Feed Me in uh, quick succession. Like I was, I, I, I mean, not through anyone's fault but my own. I, I wanted the budget to be able to invest and build a big show. So I was working towards that. And uh, in order to do that, I, I told them, get me on the road. Like, And also, I started to take to it and it becomes a bit of addictive. But I don't think it's necessarily healthy. I don't think I necessarily really had the, the um, uh, sort of coping mechanisms and, and the uh, to, to deal with what I was putting myself through. And also... Uh, I didn't really look after myself much I, or have much downtime. So like, like I think it just gets to... and not sleeping enough and stuff like that. Yeah. Like I, I, um, it's sort of funny, you know, like sort of, I, t- I, I created feed me as, as like an extension of myself, like an exaggerated persona that I could sort of duck behind and live through the character. And I ended up sort of just becoming an exaggerated version of myself anyway, after a few years. And it, it got to the point where I was thinking, I, I can't do it. I'm getting so tense and, and like jumpy and uncomfortable. And, uh, I thought I need, to, I don't know how to get anyone to take me seriously when I say that I need a break. <laughs> Cause at the time, most people around me were saying, no, you're doing fine. Just crack on. You wouldn't want to stop. You'll probably just need to, uh, have a shower or something. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was just a bit of a boiling point episode where I wanted to understand if people would, would understand, I guess, if I said that publicly. And I got a lot more compassion in people's responses than I expected. I also felt like it's improved now, but at that beginning point of EDM, um, promoters were very much, you know, stoking the fire, like just... I would go to shows and there was such an uh, impetus on me be, making sure I was very drunk and the, the, the whole party was just amped up to 11 and uh, wasn't, it was rarely sort of a chill backstage, you know, it was very much at that time it was, it was like uh, super hyped, um, which again, I look back and I don't regret because it was, some of it was just outrageous and created some weird memories, but uh yeah, that was that was the reasoning for that. Over the years, I've through you know some supportive friends and family and management and stuff, I've learned to balance these things in my life. Like I, I sort of start off saying, I'm, I don't think I wasn't really like born wanting to be a DJ or or even a musician, and um, I sort of found myself in that situation and then doing sport, and I had a handle on that but when I started feed me and it went sort of exponentially more crazy I I don't know it was all a bit overwhelming eventually but it just took a while for that to land yeah you definitely have to take care of yourself when you're doing shows I've actually just recently added a sobriety clause to my green room rider meaning no alcohol at all in the green room or drugs and no drunk people or high people in the green room so it's like if you want to do, you know, drugs and you want to drink or whatever, that's fine, but you can't come in the green room. Um, and the reason why is because uh, I've just been in too many green rooms where everybody is on coke and everybody thinks their opinion is extremely important. So it's just everyone <laughs> yelling at each other and talking very loudly. Oh, uh, yeah, you need and, to, and someone needs to bring the talking spoon. <laughs> dude, oh my God, like literally just the fucking like volume. Like I don't do f- coke, but I mean, I see that it's... 
uh, it's ex- you know I see what it does to people and literally people Nothing are just fucking yeah they're just yelling at each other and the the ambient noise level of the green room is just so fucking loud and i just find it so stressful so recently i've just been like all right that none of that and then- <laughs> yeah i suppose it's the green room is supposed to be like a sanctuary for the artists to spend time in before and after they've done their show it's not supposed to be like a cocaine echo chamber for everybody else to invade so they can say they were standing in there later yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've been the same where, you you know, you've got your tour manager or, and your friends and you make sure the green room's all locked up and you go on stage and then you come back and somehow there's 30 people in there and, and, the, and you just want to leave immediately, you know. So, yeah, there's, that's definitely a slightly uh, mismanaged area of what we do, I think. I can see exactly why you do that. I'm, I'm millimetres away from the same. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's totally worth doing, man. It's like as soon as you say to people, "You're not allowed to be drunk or high in here," the green room's empty. It's like <laughs> <laughs> they're all they're all outside doing their coke. They, I mean, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's just crazy how much of a fucking problem drug use and drinking is. In I mean, in general, like in just the world, but specifically in the music industry and specifically in fucking green rooms. Yeah, I've, well, I've always been of the opinion of each their own and um, I have a pretty dim opinion over legal control over drugs personally, but um, yeah, doing it in your face or and in a space that's allocated to you, it becomes your problem as well then. Um, I'm I'm not too keen on that at all. I... (sighs) Yeah, I suppose I'm just a bit split on it, but yeah, I don't. I definitely, it, it, it's, if you're touring a lot, it's exa- definitely something that isn't easy to be around all the time. Um, right, especially with the peer pressure, and especially if you're susceptible to addiction, and especially if you're like you know susceptible to to falling into those traps. Yeah, one one of my friends is is has been in AA a long time now, um, successfully, and he's come with me to shows, and it's been interesting seeing it through his perspective you know like how he views the environments he allows himself to be in and how comfortable he feels depending on what's going on it's like an amplified version of where i'm at sometimes depending on how comfortable even just depends what sort of days had you know so um yeah and i think there's definitely a lack of sensitivity to that from the other side i i also from the other perspective though i think it's difficult to uh, ignore or turn a blind eye to how fueled by drug use uh, dance music is. It's like just entwined, especially in the UK, it's basically politically entwined with it back to like the rave act, you know. So it's the imagery and is and, and the lifestyle is, is like forever tied together with ecstasy and, and, and or a whole plethora of drugs, depending on your sort of individual music preferences. So it's something I've just sort of always, I guess, observed. I don't know how much opinion I have on it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not judging people who do that shit. I, I just don't like it around me in the green room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, otherwise, uh, speaking of like drugs and stuff like that, uh, is spore related in any way to psilocybin mushrooms? Like the name of the project? No, no, I've, I've never done hallucinogenics either. So that's like, I wouldn't, it's not my thing. I, I feel like I have enough trouble with my own imagination <laughs> without having it enhanced. <laughs> so oh, I've right. always just swerved that. Uh, it, no, nah, it was, it came about from, 
one of my friends did a piece of artwork and titled it Spore Tactics. And I remember thinking, that's cool. And uh, I was uh, looking for a tag name at the time. So I asked him if I could use it. And he was like, oh, I don't give a shit. So, and then I started tagging and then some of my friends that I made, I started, this was when I was like a teenager, a uh, very long time ago. And uh, some of my friends in the States were graffiti writers and they were like, you need, you need to drop the E off the end. Just four letters is enough. You know, no one's got time for five. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that, that's, that was literally it. Um, I just sort of stuck with it. I needed a name to go solo when the friend I was working with, he went off to university. Um, and so I just stuck with it. It just seemed like a, it was more of a nickname really than anything. Um, mm. where, so when it got to feed me, I wanted something a lot more conceptual by comparison, which is why I put a lot more into, you know, stock into the whole look and feel of it. Cause I always felt like I'd, I sort of stumbled into being spore. I didn't have the chance to really plan it out. So it, it was, was the same with me. Like my name, uh, my musical name is just my name, uh, Mr. Yeah. Bill. Like my friends around me, they're just like, ah, Mr. Bill, he's at the party. Like <laughs> I just, yeah, stuck with it. And it's funny because like a lot of people come up to me and they're like, is your real name Bill? Like they think that I've like created a, this different name for some reason. Or It's the same with I like art, it. It's got art, a nice, think, like, right? it's very, it, it, it's so plain. It looks incredibly confident, I think. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I like the I mean, art for your latest record as well. Like the the figure with like the um sort of pattern of it looks like microorganisms like populating its body. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the, that was done by Funny. Are you familiar with Funny? Mm, I'd have to look. Not by name. He's done a he's done some shit for Sorrow. He's done he's done. I think he did something for. Uh, he's definitely worked for Cursor. He's done a bunch of inspected stuff. He's yeah. Oh, he's, okay. He's amazing, man. He's he's also London based. Um, yeah, yeah, you guys, you guys should definitely chat if you're into visual art because I, I had no idea that you were a visual artist. But yeah, I should introduce you guys because he's fucking incredible. Oh, that'd he's be nice. Done, he, yeah, yeah. He's, he, he does all of my artwork. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I I was supposed to be a visual artist. This is all a horrible accident. Being a <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to do this. Yeah, uh, how, does, always, uh, how does that happen? Done. Uh, I, well, I got Fruity Loops as like a, just because I saw, a, I can't remember who I saw using it. Um, I remember one of my school friends had like a, a program on a CD where you could like put clips together and make dance tracks. And I think from that I found, they were like whole clips, like massive pieces of a song and you would just drop them together. They're all in the same key. It's kind of like a mashup thing. Or... It was similar to that one that was on PlayStation. Uh, I can't remember what that was called, but um. Anyway, I think from that, I found Fruity Loops and grabbed it. Um, and I was quickly, I was just sort of amazed that I could do this at home and it would bounce straight to an MP3. I thought, this is crazy. I can actually take these on a little stick and show people or burn them to a CD and stuff. So it, just, it was totally a hobby. I had someone at school picked up on what I was doing. They were DJing locally and they came back and like helped me edit some of the stuff into drum and bass tracks. And then that sort of just escalated from there. But the whole time I was sort of fixated on, you know, having a visual arts career. I was focused on that heavily at school. I didn't do any, uh, I played an orchestra, but I didn't do like music as a subject. Mm. Uh, I just sort of learned, I, I could read music and play in the orchestra. But yeah, so uh, 
it just got to the point where I wasn't in, I'd picked a uni course that was visually orientated. And after two years, I was blagging my way through it to stay in. They're like, they were doing everything they could to kick me out because my attendance was so bad because I wasn't quite connecting with it. So I was sneaking out of uni and going back and making music at home. Uh, and I didn't, I was hoping that I would get some traction with music before uni informed my family that I had wasted all their money and <laughs> I had to leave. <laughs> and I just about pulled that off. So that's sort of how I am where I am. Damn. Uh, yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. What does an art career look like, by the way? Like, how did you envision that? <laughs> Fuck nice. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, at the time I was doing... Uh, model design, which was like special, uh, with an personally with an emphasis on the special effects side of things. So I've okay. got a, a lot of interest in special effects, animatronics, um, miniatures, anything like that. Uh, so I was hoping there was a career in that. But while I was at the course, they were basically continually telling us that computers were replacing the job we were trying for. And I was like, why am I still coming? Like, <laughs> they're oh yeah, the the, the modelling and special effects industry is collapsing and we're not covering any of the 3DX, uh, 3D Max and programming stuff that you'll probably need to continue doing this job in years to come. I said, <laughs> Which is completely extremely, untrue. It is untrue, yeah. I think that it was just shifting to what they knew, like compared to the, the, the world the tutors had grown up in, the, it was just a paradigm shift. And um, I'm sure lots of my classmates are, you know, doing very well in that field. But for me... With because I already had a couple of fingers in a different pie, I was thinking mm, it'd be a lot easier just to try and make that take off. And there was like a romance to it as well. I wanted to sort of rebel, I guess, in some way. Mm. So, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know what I would have ended up doing. I, I also uh, had thought about doing sculpture. I was interested in that. I was also interested in jewelry design at the time. Like I've, I, I mulled a few things over. Uh, uh, I've always been sort of illustrative, sculptural. I like thinking in three dimensions in terms of modeling and stuff. So I don't know where it would have ended up if this hadn't worked. I've not got a clue. Maybe like architecture or something like that? Uh, I don't know. I know an architect and I don't know if I've got the minerals, to be honest. It's a lot of calculation and it's a lot of being told you've got to change stuff. Right. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, speaking of architecture, isn't there a building in London that got like seriously, uh, there was like some serious architecture, architectural failure there where, um, I can't remember what building it is. It's a big You're fucking- talking about the microphone. The, the silver big... one that was like burning holes in cars because it was Oh like yeah, yeah that, that's the microphone building. Yeah. It, 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 it gets wider as it goes up. Yeah. Yeah. My friend actually, my architect friend- hates that building i think it's widely hated in our, <laughs> yeah because it, it created more problems than it solved and yeah i heard uh, it like it was because of the shape of it the sun was bouncing off it and like reflecting into the cars and like burning holes in roofs yeah of cars. yeah like melt it melted the road in someone's car yeah it like That's created like a giant <laughs> magnifying glass and uh also i think because of this uh i think a lot of uh, tall building con uh, construction now is about uh, heat management and using convection through the building to pull air through naturally rather than pump it through. And if you have a building that's small at the bottom and big at the top, you like counteract the building's natural urge to pull the air through. So it actually creates weird wind that blows down the side of the buildings rather than up. Mm. And you create a downdraft into the street 
and the building doesn't ventilate properly. So, and it looks horrible as well. <laughs> so right. It's just like completely at odds with the rest. London has a pretty eclectic skyline at this point, but it's this very odd, you know, sort of axe head shaped wedge sticking up awkwardly. Doesn't, no matter what angle you see it from in London, it looks sort of wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I went, went to London and saw it and I saw a bunch of shit, but yeah, I did see, I saw that building. And I was like, yeah, not a, not a fan. <laughs> I don't think anyone likes it. Yeah. I'd, just modern architecture in general has gotten fucking weird, man. It's like, yeah, it's got a lot of like, what's that prize called? The, is it the Pulitzer or whatever the, that you get if you're a good architect? Is that what that um, is? The, I know Pulitzer. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I didn't know it was for architecture. I just know the word. Yeah. Uh, some prize or some shit that you can get for architects. Um, and pretty much like everyone on the board of the, I think, Pulitzer uh, Architect Award give a thing, all agree like this modern architecture look that's happening a lot lately where you get these weird shaped silver buildings and shit is like good and they love it. And that's why it keeps happening because like um, the same reason that like people would maybe um, make, you know, shitty sounding bro step or whatever because there's like a high reward for nailing it and doing so. Uh, architect, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like architect, architects or architecture, it, it kind of has like that that same problem. There's like a big reward for nailing that shitty looking building. <laughs> so the the result is lots of mediocre ones. For one, every now and again, one really nice shard of pointy glass. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's a shame in music too. It's a shame in all art, but. Uh, it, it just so happens though that in architecture the, the problem would be fixable just by changing the panel of like a few people whereas with music it's not really uh solvable so easily because what what makes something popular is like the of the opinion of like millions and millions of people right yeah i, I, I suppose i've it's easy to get from my point of view i i found myself getting sucked into wondering about that a lot and it's I don't I don't think it's something I can answer. Like it seems to me that the way people are ingesting music, where they are when they're listening to music, and how much attention they're paying to the music is like has shifted a lot from how I live definitely from how I listened to music when I was young. And uh and then even within that, the goalposts are still shifting. Like Spotify is changing its legislation month to month. Um and I'm sure other platforms are going to pop up and you've got, you know, TikTok now, you know, making or breaking artists. And um, right. so trying to keep up with goalposts that are moving that fast to me is almost an impossibility. And I found myself better served with sort of focuses on my own sketchbook, so to say, and then working out how I can adapt each time I surface to do a release and try and make sure that I still reach people. But it's definitely increasingly difficult and I don't know, maybe, maybe what we think of as, as music is just wrong. And like in a hundred years, it will just be totally freeform. Like you'll just put some headphones on and they'll just play you a bunch of noises that an algorithm thinks you feel like hearing, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of already happening. Um, do you know how the Spotify algorithm works on like, you know, when you start listening to Spotify and then all of a sudden it just starts like playing your random tracks. Uh-huh. Uh, do you know how that algorithm works? No, please tell me. I'm interested. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it it just finds another person that's very similar to you and just shows you each other's tracks. 
It's like, <laughs> which is which is kind of interesting, right? Because then it's like it's essentially putting you in a room with a random person who's just like, oh, have you seen this? And then they type that into YouTube. And then you're like, oh, yeah, fuck, you'd probably like this. And then you type that into YouTube yeah. and show them. It's it's doing that, basically. It's with you but without the nice social aspects, just the, yeah, exactly. just the so, algorithmic one. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. I remember... It's like, I, I Yeah. I found a lot of music initially by uh, looking through people's drives on Napster and uh, SoulSeek. Mm. Uh, when I was when we first got the internet as a family, and I, I thought that was great. I would find you know an oddball song that I couldn't get hold of, and then it, you could just look at the drive it was in. If that person had shared a whole music folder on their hard drive, and I found they would inevitably have some really weird music, and I would just grab stuff, and you couldn't preview it, so I would just grab it, and I'd end up with like you know, Tibetan throat singing and like Gregorian choir uh, and someone's recital, <laughs> like all kinds of like odd stuff. I found a lot of uh, like Kodo drums and things like that. I found all sorts of things like that, but I never would have been able to locate uh, any other way at the time. So that, I thought that was nice. I don't know if this algorithm method is quite as exciting but uh, I, having said that, the Spotify algorithm has showed me some cool music that I wouldn't have otherwise found. So maybe, maybe it is good. I don't know. What yeah, do I mean, uh, well, I mean, I think it's uh, the thing that bothers me is the privacy aspect of everything. Like Spotify, just knowing some, and this like extends obviously way beyond Spotify. With Spotify, I don't have a problem with it. I think it's really clever, and and it's I've found some amazing shit, like you just said, that I probably wouldn't have found otherwise. And likewise, back in the early day, I had to put in a lot of effort to find shit that I liked. Essentially, I had to just talk. I had to just do exactly what the Spotify algorithm is doing, but with with friends, right? Who were like, you know, have you heard this? And you know, go to parties and like rely on promoters bringing out you know people like you and Ewan uh who'd also brought out like you know Noisia and I and I knew of Noisia and I went to that show and then that promoter brought out you guys and then I, that's how I found out about you and so on um so I think you know the Spotify algorithm removes a lot of the middleman in that way and I like that about it <clears throat> um but in other aspects of uh algorithmic stuff like I don't know Amazon showing you some shit or uh you know, just how how much like web browsers take of your data and stuff like that. It it kind of bothers me because what we're heading towards, I think, is um a society where like you wake up and you know there's just like packages waiting at your door of shit that you didn't even know you needed or wanted, but they're just there because the algorithm knows you so well, you know, like maybe you wake up one day, you open your mailbox and there's some like medication in there and you're like, wait, I'm not sick. And then like two days later, you start getting sick or something, you know, it's like, or, or, um, I mean, there was, there was a good example of this man of like this dude who, um, was, uh, who, who started getting lots and lots of uh, physical mail to his house from, um, I think it was like Walgreens or some shit, like some big company being like, Hey, you need to buy, uh, his like, you need to buy pregnancy tests or something like that. He was like, why? Like my daughter's not pregnant and my wife's not pregnant. Like, why do you keep sending me this shit? And then it turned out that like his daughter was actually pregnant and the algorithm had like figured this out and had just been sending pregnancy tests to this oh, guy's house. Raw. Yeah. I, <laughs> It does seem pretty dy dystopic, doesn't it? When you sort of 
I think people are slowly realizing how predictable they are when they see how even small amounts of cookie data can provide pretty clear pictures on people's behavior or preferences and stuff. Um, Do you know so about that, pixel yeah. tracking? Oh, sorry, go on. No, tell me. Um, I don't know about <laughs> that term. So I date, I date a hacker, so this is why I know this. Um, yeah, the, the girl I date uh, is the, the chief security officer at Brave, which is a privacy browser, which was started by the guy who uh, started Firefox and also invented JavaScript. So I hear a lot about this shit through her. There's this thing called pixel tracking. And um, what it is, is it uh, recognizes exactly how many pixels, like the website, when it serves you up an ad, it's also like taking data from your computer. Uh, and for somebody like you or I, uh, this is so fucking easy for them to figure out who's looking at what. Because uh, like, for instance, I have a really big screen, right? Like a huge LG screen. And then I have a, like a yeah, very same. specific RME fire face. And then I have a very specific mouse and keyboard, like a Razer keyboard with like a Logitech mouse and very specific, like, like all the things plugged into my computer are very specific, right? And like, there's probably not a lot of people who have this exact combination of things. Uh, and websites are very easily able to get that information and build a profile and just be like, bam, that's that guy. Like even without your IP or anything, they can track your interfaces huh. and, and your IO stuff and, and be like- Just that, by the amount of pixels they're serving to display their website on your screen. Yep. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. So it's Come like on. even, yeah, <laughs> even if you have like, uh, you know, other ways of hiding who you are online, there's this way that they can still figure out a, who's looking at what via pixel tracking. And that's probably, I probably murdered that and like didn't explain it very prop, very well, but. um. No, I got the, yeah, I, I got the gist, definitely interesting again. Yeah. yeah I, I've yeah. sort of resigned to the, the idea of privacy a long time ago. I mean, uh, I do think it's, it's a privilege at this point, if you've got any, you know, and if you're right. trying to man, manage it as an artist, you know, when there's been an increase in emphasis through, through my career to put more of your, you know, real life per se online and display it. And I've sort of experimented with that on and off, like how much do I want to share about me? And I sort of found I'm pretty comfortable with not sharing a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like, especially these days on Twitter, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it doesn't seem worth it. And I like being, I guess just like an entity to people, you know, the same way that musicians are to me. I've, I've, I've been lucky to meet lots of musicians and artists I admire over the years. And I've had some interesting experiences in doing so, but when I look back, whether they were crucial to me, uh, not many of them really were. And I'm, I like the idea of mystery around music and art and the idea that I don't know who that person really is but I get to see a little bit of their brain and that comes out in their records or uh, paintings they make or things like that. And mm. I hope that I can represent myself in the same way. That was sort of, to, you know, to, I don't, I, maybe this works for some people to be just limitlessly accessible and have their whole lives documented online. Um, how they tour behind the scenes and who they hang out with, where they live. But I like being able to sort of, you know, be that person on my own and then just connect through the beacon of some music. I think that's, that's special. Uh, I, I think it sometimes lands better that way. 
Um, but in terms of like browsing privacy and stuff, I don't know if I've got any or if any of us really have. It's the same as maybe not to your degree, but one of my uh, friends works in network security. He's been telling to sort of feeding me bits and pieces about this over the years. And I sort of, after listening to him, you know, month in, month out, I was like, well, you've got to just give up the idea of being incognito. There's no way. And and if you've had to collect visas and put, give the American embassy your fingerprints 20 times, yeah, I think you can definitely write it off. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what you give up um, in privacy, you gain hopefully in uh, convenience. But, uh, you know, <laughs> It's, yeah, oh, that's true. And things are pretty convenient these days, aren't they? Like you said, you're only yeah. like a hair's breadth away from packages arriving before you need to. You knew you needed them, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for example, I ran out this morning of uh, ingredients to make smoothies, and I was like, "Oh my god, fuck! This. Like, how did I let this happen? I, I really <laughs> want to make a smoothie right now." I also ran out of coffee yesterday, and I'm like, "Oh, how did I let this happen?" It's like, now what am I going to do? You know, I have to walk to a coffee shop and like. Um, and you know, like that's just a thing that will be a thing of the past. Like, and it already kind of is actually like, I have this, um, thing called, uh, bottomless. It's like a scale that sits next to my coffee machine and has a bag of coffee on it. And it algorithmically figures out, uh, how much coffee I drink, uh, <laughs> based, based <laughs> on the, on, on the weight of the scale. Yeah. And when the weight on the scale is getting low, it re automatically reorders me a bag of coffee and sends it to me. The reason it didn't work this time is cause I just was out for a long period of time. So I hadn't right. been drinking coffee. So the algorithm was like, Oh, you're not drinking coffee at all. Right now. It seems like, yeah. They're like, looks like you're taking a coffee hiatus. And that's why I ran out this time. But I mean, like, that's just another example of like a, that, that exact thing happening. <laughs> I know Amazon, I don't know if it's the same where you are, but uh, Amazon will sell you these little buttons uh, with like a long battery life and you put them next to like whatever disposable you use, like washing powder. And when you, when it gets, when you run out of washing powder, you push the button. It's It's got like its own transmitter and battery in it. It's just a button with that, with the logo on the front. You push right. the button, it auto, it auto orders another batch straight through Amazon without having a touch your phone yeah, or anything yeah. but Dude, it that's sick i mean yeah sort of i thought if if i if i did order one of these for all of the consumables in my house it would look sort of dystopian again you'd have like these just you just walk around hitting them everywhere <laughs> or someone that didn't like you can just come around and just like yeah what hammer if you had a, a few times <laughs> yeah if you had a kid or something and like your kid just spam the button yeah. And all of a sudden you have like a fucking an Amazon truck just pull up in front of your That's house. That's 100% just... <laughs> happening right now. Yeah. Actually, yeah. something similar happens to someone I know. Um, I think I, f I forgot. They're like Malaysian noodles and they come with like a little bag of like sticky soy and chili. Is it me goring? Yes. Yes, I yes. love those. Yeah. <laughs> um, someone I know tried to order those really late at night on, and their uh, internet connection fouled up. And then they went away. And while they were away, their girlfriend took delivery of an entire truck of migraine noodles. And they like filled his hallway with box after box oh after box. Oh my God. Because his yeah. internet connection had like frozen during the order and it repeated it like a thousand times. And all, How? So, How does that happen? And also yeah, that's hilarious. It upset his girlfriend a lot. She, she was like, crying because they wouldn't stop bringing them in the house and, and then they wouldn't take them either because they were perishable so they had to arrange for them to be like taken by a charity um oh my god 
And yeah. did they get their money back for that or? Yeah, yeah, they got all refunded, no problem. But it, it was like, I don't know, a couple of thousand dollars worth of noodles. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I've never heard yeah. of that. I've, I've you, heard of, um, seen... go on. Have you, I was going to say, have you seen Brazil, a Terry Gilliam film? It reminded me of the sort of thing that might happen in that. No, I haven't. If anyone's not seen that, it's one of my favorite films. It's just a, It's called Brazil? Brazil. Yeah, it's nothing to do with the country Brazil. It's uh, it's set in like a dystopian future where everything is run by mountains of bureaucracy and to the point where nothing runs correctly and everyone's mm. stuck inside a suit dying at their desk. Sure. <laughs> Getting, yeah, it's, it's sort of a very dark comedy. Uh, Damn. Which yeah, it sounds, a, sounds like wall, kind of like Wally. Yeah, I, once you see Brazil, Brazil's from the eighties. Once you see it, you see a lot of influence that it sort of, that was sort of taken from it uh, in subsequent stuff. Even now, uh, it still it still holds up. Rewatched it the other week. Actually, it still uh, still gets me chuckling. Yeah, you're you're like a kind of fantasy and science fiction fan, right? Because I mean, you have that song Frank Fazetta, and I know he's a um, you know, science fiction writer or whatever. And, uh, uh, also, he was a yeah, cover artist mainly. Yeah. He was a comic book cover and fantasy artist. Right. And then you had a, uh, I see on, I, I was reading your Wikipedia page earlier and it had some quote on there by Harlan Ellison, which is also like a, a, a yeah, an author or an artist. Yeah. He was a sci-fi author. He, he, uh, he did a, a quote I liked. The sort of main reason I uh, heard of him. I grew up reading a lot of sci-fi and watching a lot of sci-fi. Dad, was, uh, dad was very much into it, um, and it captured my imagination. Uh, to me, it's just a way of exploring the human condition. It doesn't necessarily need to be sort of spaceships and uh, you know f total futurism, so to speak. It's just. The idea of studying like what is experience, basically. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's the to me it's the in in fiction it's the best way to explore that as a topic, and I've always enjoyed it for that. Uh, is it Ted Chiang? I read it's a comp uh, compendium of short stories recently that was really good, and and all based around that. Um, I'd have to I'd have to Google the name. Um, so I asked uh, Twitter and Discord earlier uh, just to like ask a bunch of random questions. We can get into those if you like, or we could just continue talking about random shit. <laughs> no, uh, just just before I, I forget, it is Ted Chiang. Um, uh, st stories of your life and other uh, short stories was one of them. He he he. Um, Oh, excuse me. He wrote the short story that uh, uh, Arrival. He wrote the short story that Arrival was based on. Oh uh, shit! Yeah, that was a crazy fucking movie. Yeah, it's, he has a couple of compendium books with stories based around that, where there's a sci-fi premise, but the lesson is more about how we think, you know, and mm. uh, so more introspective. Anyway, give me these. Yeah. Give me these random questions. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no worries. There's a, there's a bunch of them. Um, uh, well, somebody was asking uh, about your latest album. They said uh, you said on Instagram or something or that it was a part of a larger body of creative work and and they asked if you want to touch more on that and then is there other stuff in the future that like you've already sort of planned out of this larger body of work? Oh, yeah. Um, I did say that. I did say that. Uh, yes. 
So in terms of within Feed Me, I, I'm trying to work on doing an, a, a live album where I want to sort of combine my live performances with some new versions of, of the tracks I've written that I've made and find an interesting way of recording this and putting it together. So it's going to be a sort of back and forth process as I start traveling again uh, to do that. But I thought, especially with the gap, it would be nice to sort of capture some of the energy that I've been lucky enough to be privy to with doing live shows for so long mm. in a, onto a record, you know? So I've been trying to work out how to do that. Um, so that's what's occupying me at the moment. Uh, I also have uh, another project called Seventh Stitch, which I've been accruing, I guess, for, I even know now, like 15 years. That's like IDM stuff, right? Not really. Um, some of it's, uh, it's I, I mean, I'm singing on some of it. Uh, I play instruments, some of it's sort of band orientated. I would say overall it's introspective and lo-fi and sombre. I guess, but which is probably a bit closer to who I am day to day. Uh, and on top of that, I've been spending the last few years learning a lot of uh, visual software and uh, crossover audio visual stuff through uh, like Max, um, some stuff in Blender and uh, starting to try and get in some other sort of environmental programming as well. And I also have a, a collection of cameras and film equipment that I've been producing. So uh, over the last couple of years, I've been producing music music videos, I guess, for a lot of the songs that I've written. I've probably got a few albums worth at this point. So it's becoming unintentionally my biggest project, I guess, compared to the others in terms of volume. Uh, like a lot of the equipment in the studio is also based around that project. It's just that it isn't out yet. <laughs> Uh, so that's the larger body of work. That's the other part of it is, uh, getting that out to people, um, in an effective way. Uh, so I've, I started putting a few little teaser bits together into a website, um, uh, seventh stitch with the, the dot before the CH. Um, but at the moment that's the extent of it. And hopefully I can bring some more news about what we do next with it pretty soon. But that's my, like that's my balance between making feed me which is very much like belligerent music really it's sort of yeah. satire to me and <laughs> uh it's not to be taken seriously you know and uh, i get a lot of like catharsis from that and then the balance to that when i actually sort of want to di make more of a diary of my life i guess i do through the seven stitch project it's just hard to you know i don't want to talk too much about it continually because i should just get on with it and fucking release it instead of waxing. So, <laughs> but that was what I meant when I said that anyway. Right. What is your, um, what's your work ethic like day to day? Do you, are you like essentially, do you have a like set studio hours where you start and stop or, um, like, you know, do you work every day or do you take weekends off and stuff like that? Cause I, I imagine if you're doing all these projects in like blender and max and like trying to put together live shows and trying to, you know, I mean, I know you're coming out to America soon to play a spore set. And I mean, I don't know how you'd go about putting sets together, but for me, like there's a lot of preparation involved in trying to put a set together. And it's just like a shitload of fucking work to do all the time. It seems like for, at least for me. And, and I imagine for you too, if you have all these projects so yeah what's your um like studio um, and this is not a twitter question this is just again we're back we're back to <laughs> rambling here <laughs> uh, 
I, what I love learning, um, and I do find it, it's funny, as I've, as I've got older, I find it harder to switch off. I used to like be able to put Minecraft on and, and like bury 10 hours <laughs> digging a yeah, hole. And, totally. But now, I, unless I'm like learning or actively creating something, I, I found it pretty hard to like really turn off and stop, hmm. which has been good for productivity, but I'm still trying to work out, um, you know, towards, I guess towards the other side of lockdown, how to like ma- make myself a bit more manageable. Cause I, I, I does create a situation where I end up sort of being either exhausted or manic. So I don't know. I haven't got a total answer, but I definitely don't have ultra regular hours. Um, I do try and balance my like indoor outdoor time. So I've got like a uh, sort of art studio now at the end of the property and I can go down there and work in a different building, you know, it's nice and airy and space, mm-hmm. work on some visual stuff, put some music on and sort of detach myself. Um, and then if I want to do any reading, I try and do that outside, uh, like learning stuff, watching tutorials and things, try and do that outside. And then if I'm in here, then I tend to be focused on actually directly creating or, or coding or, you know, playing. So mm. uh, just by s- switching up my environment that seems to stop me going nuts <laughs> right what kind of coding uh, do you do uh well max principally max ah, and i've started gotcha. learning uh uh geosl for uh shaders um mm. which i've been editing for a while but right it's difficult i saw a crazy fucking website the other day i can't remember what exactly it's called do i did i save it yes i did it's called Shader toy. it's called what it's called natto.dev. Um, essentially, it's JavaScript, but it's no, it's like a node-based JavaScript editor that works and executes directly in your web browser, which is fucking crazy. Right, nice. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, so it's basically like Max MSP, but for JavaScript, which is really cool, which doesn't, I mean, really fucking matter. because Oh, yeah, so jo- it's just completely contained in the browser. I'm looking at it's it. So, yeah, it's so sick. And you can just like execute it there and everything. But I mean, like JavaScript now has like that node.js object anyway, so you can just sort of open that yeah. and write JavaScript directly in there if you want. Yeah, I, this sort of, I started because there's a, there's a module in FL Studio that will load shaders, essentially. And hmm. I, I found it, it just mind blowing it. I'd sort of seen it in the background for years and I paid attention to it finally and realized how sort of powerful it was. And then that led me to actually reading how the shaders were done. And there's some like audio visual artists I'm interested in that it's, it's sort of, I sort of joined the dots and it becomes apparent that they're using shader based coding to produce audio reactive patches, even in Macs and things like that. Mm. Um, and so just joining all these dots, I just found a total new, playing field really to think about um and i like staying in that sort of childlike state of not quite knowing what i'm doing and sort of fighting for a bit more information i think uh, it keeps me inspired and humble and i'm definitely very much in the childlike phase of coding i'm sort of squinting at the screen and hammering away and sometimes it works and you get three quarters of what you wanted so but i've been really enjoying that (laughs) yeah uh, same yeah i mean i'm really so in the same like child i'm in that child a very elementary state of coding which actually leads into a question that got asked on discord um somebody said you were on like a noisier podcast or something and, and you explained something as like photoshop sounds uh is this what you're talking about or were you talking more about like no karma? that's 
that's uh that was a thing called photo sounder that we used so yeah you can it's um oh, i forget the spectrosonic i forget the term i have a couple of programs to do it now but you can like metasynth or whatever yeah 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 so you can directly in photoshop even create a canvas that's black for example airbrush some polygonal white shapes on it and they will create, and then it will directly turn that into a graph of frequency over time, and then produce mm. the sound that that produces. And then you mm. can also do the reverse, so you can create a sound, turn it into a PNG, mm. smudge the PNG with a with a brush, and then change it back into sound, and you right. get some very odd spectral effects doing that. Um, yeah, Isotope Iris does this too, doesn't it? Quite possibly. I can't remember yeah. what the last one I used was. I did. I did a spore live set for UKF last year and I I used this program to turn my skull logo into a sound and then played it out a few times into the visualizer um but I've already forgotten what it was yeah, that's true. <laughs> I love when people do shit like that when they like uh, dude there's this guy called Sultan he like makes crazy sounding dubstep and he's like figured out how to write his name in the actual audio waveform at the end of every one of his tracks it's like <laughs> That's great. Like, yeah, to create like the S and stuff, there's like some crazy DC offset with like a very mono sound that like creates yeah. anything that looks like an S and shit. And like he's used all this crazy yeah DC offset and wave shaping and just yeah, so something that would take some serious knowledge of wave shaping, I think, to do. That's cool. Yeah, yeah super cool. Uh, but I mean, you know, obviously, like a lot of people have done the spectral thing at this point, starting with Aphex Twin and Venetian uh -huh. Snares with the songs about my cats and the equation tune and whatever. Yep. Um, but yeah, I know, I know that, uh, uh, FL studio has some in, cool inbuilt shit for that. Like Hama I've used before to, to, you know, do some image synthesis stuff. Like I did yeah. a song once with circuit bent and we like did our tour announce through Hama. <laughs> so like, um, <laughs> we like released a collab just before we were, we were going to announce a tour. And in the middle of the song, like in the breakdown, there's just this big like spectral smear and it's like Mr. Bill's Circuit Bent Tour coming soon, like announced. And <laughs> if you awesome. like ran it, ran it through That's a spectrogram. Great. Yeah. Though not many people found it. I mean, people found it like years later. Yeah, but if someone did, that's all right. that matters, isn't it? I yeah, love exactly. that. <laughs> and I mean, I, I remember I had a couple of albums on CD as a kid where you could play the album and then rewind back from track one. So it was, you, you would start, let it play to two seconds and hold rewind and it would go back in front of track one on the CD. There was actually a um, a hidden start time and there was another track there. And we think that was oh, a great shit. idea. So they just edited huh. the metadata to move the start point of track one in like three minutes. And then it was, huh. it, but the, you know, the data is still there on the disc, just the other side of the, of the meta. Um, I can't remember who it was, but I remember thinking that was a cool idea. I, I miss yeah. being able to do stuff like that because there's a lot more restrictions over the way we present. You know, if you're all, Spotify aren't going to let you, uh, I'm going to let you do that now. Uh, mm, I actually, yeah. I, one of my albums had a long silence and a secret track and Spotify auto cropped it off the end. So we've got to like put it back on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's fucking annoying. There's this yeah. guy, this IDM guy named Access to Arasaka, 
and um he has like all these weird track names that just have like you know divided by symbols in them and like all sorts of weird shit and he has this one track that if you use windows and you open it in vlc your cd drive opens Like just, and he said it wasn't intentional like when i asked him about it but somehow just ended up being a symptom of, of him naming his tracks in this weird way i was like man that's got to be like a fucking one in a billion chance that that would happen that's i nice. do I, I do miss that kind of yeah early stage production discovery stuff that's maybe been a little lost today yeah, well, it feels a bit rebellious again, doesn't it? If you're finding little ways to like mess mess with the medium and create little sort of Easter eggs for people, I think there's a nice connection there. It's it's getting harder to do. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, I always like ask my manager, um, "Hey, have you got any questions that you think I should ask?" Because like you know, a lot of the time doing these podcasts with management. Um, the other sides management i.e like your management uh you know request to push a certain agenda which like at the moment for you would probably be your latest album so uh i asked my manager any questions i should ask and he said that your management told him that you wanted to put your latest album out on cassette (laughs) and um oh yeah that's true we we have we have done that (laughs) oh shit okay sweet yeah Yeah. do you think um yeah why like why do you think people like I sold a vinyl last year and it just sold out like instantly. And I, a bunch of the people who bought it didn't even have record players. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know, like, what do you, what do you think it is? Like say I do the same thing. Like I buy vinyls. I don't even fucking own a record player. I don't even like the fide- like concept of, I don't know why I buy them. It's like, well, what, if what you, you subscribe to reality being real, uh, then yeah. there's, <laughs> there's value in, in the tangible, isn't there? And so much of our time is spent even like right now, we're still technically sort of virtual to each other. And uh, I think, you know, perhaps it used to be that it was inseparable between owning the music and owning a record. They were inherently the same. But now you don't need to own the record to have access to the music. But I think it's turning out that people want to have an object that represents their connection with the music. So it's a simplistic and sort of culturally symbolic way of saying like, I subscribe to this person as an idea. Like I want something in my house that represents them. And even, you know, should the internet just cave in, you will be able to listen to that. It will still play. Mm. Uh, So I think there's some inherent, like, I think people like having tokens and, and, you know, symbols and uh, trinkets, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, to represent stuff they believe in. And I think it's maybe just a facet of that. To me, cassettes are a sort of, they're so esoteric. And I grew up just banging so many cassettes into tape players and making them with a little mic and uh, cross-fading tapes from decade to B. And so it's a very much a nostalgic object to me, but I do think they sound nice. And uh, the format, I think, has like a kitsch, classiness to it in a way (laughs) sort of simultaneously really cheap and horrible and sort of lovely at the same time uh so it's something i just wanted to do whether it is a tremendous success or not wasn't really the point it's just the format to me it's like just i love it yeah cassettes are fucking sweet same with vinyl as well was it um i mean i'm sure you pressed vinyl before uh what did you find more difficult uh in terms of 
sorting out? Did you find it easier to get a cassette press happening or do you find it easier to get oh, a vinyl Oh, it's way press faster. Press? Cassette you can turn around in days. Yeah, at the moment in the UK, at least vinyl's taking months and months of lead time. So I, yeah, I had to dude, have this the... whole album ready a very long time ago. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, the vinyl shit is crazy. I'm trying to do a Phantasmagoria vinyl. And yeah, the, the backup, the backup time right now is crazy. For whatever reason, I guess like the like you said, people just want trinkets. So the vinyl industry right now is popping off again. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It's a nice big print format as well. It's just right. You know, you can put it on a shelf and see what it is. It's, you get a nice package, I think, buying one. Mm, uh, yeah, I do true. like doing them. I attended, I attended all like Renegade Hardware's vinyl cuts, all the barcode ones, um, all the album stuff. I would always go down to London and sit in at the cut sessions. So, um, and then when we moved at Lifted, we moved to Stu Hawks at Metropolis. I attended all those. So I've sat in for consecutive days of, of vinyl cuts since I was like 18, 17, 18, um, and watching vinyl get cut and, you know, like convincing the cutting engineer to crank the helium coolant up and get a little <laughs> bit more volume on it. Uh, and try and keep a bit more of the tops up and, and stuff like that. Uh, I loved how sort of, it just seemed like this ancient technology to me at the time that we were having to use. And But there's like the smell and the feeling of the whole building and stuff. Uh, it's very nostalgic and romantic, but yeah, it keeps me personally attached to the format too, as well as it being a trinket that people like. like I like the history of the object too. Mm. Speaking of uh, uh, fucking helium and chemicals and shit, uh, I had some person on Twitter send through an article and part of the article uh, said that um, you had some CO2 cannons and you were playing a show with Datsik and instead of spraying out CO2, it sprayed out some sort of chemical that like that smoked out the whole building and everyone started coughing and had to leave or something? Uh <sighs> Uh, that's okay. No, I, um, I threw a drink on him and I got thrown off the stage, okay. but I, I had like a running at the time, like a running tongue in cheek vendetta against him. Gotcha. And so one of, <laughs> I was only allowed back on the stage if I wasn't holding a drink. So, okay. and I was intent on getting my, him getting his comeuppance. So I walked back on the stage. Security let me on because I didn't have a drink in my hand. Then one of Sigma, uh, Woos, went under the stage with a full uh, fire extinguisher and passed it up through a hole in the stage to me, <laughs> whereby I immediately let it rip all over Datsik, uh, thinking I was expecting it to be a foam one, but I had not studied the fire extinguisher properly, and it was a warehouse-sized uh, powder one. And it doused sure. him with like, you know, incredible. I don't know if you ever got that stuff in your eyes or your nose. But it's, like pep it's, no. it's like pepper spray. And oh, uh, he immediately fell down and threw up. <laughs> and then this, a bunch of the security guard tried to tackle me. So I just kept spraying it until I basically disappeared like a fucking Bond villain. And then, uh, and the whole stage disappeared in <clears throat> dust. And then I rolled like a barrel until I fell off the side of the stage because I could hear people screaming to get me. And I bust my shoulder in and then I ran outside the hangar and I dived under a petrol generator <laughs> and cracked my head open. 
And then I hid under there for about 15 minutes while a gang of security and the promoter ran around trying to kick the shit out of me. <laughs> and then the stage shut down. The CDJs wouldn't work. And then uh, I got a ride out of the venue and m mostly avoided everyone except a couple of security that managed to like almost fight me. Uh, and then eventually I had to pay to replace the CDJs after a very lengthy email chain, which was in hindsight, all very embarrassing. Sorry, oh, everyone. Dude, if that shit happened today, <laughs> if that shit happened today, man, that would, you would get so canceled, man. What year did this happen? <laughs> it's a very long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck uh, lucky. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Well, like I, I thought I was being, it, it, it was basically. I mean, actually a... maybe not because. But I mean, maybe you wouldn't get cancelled because of Statsic and he's cancelled. So maybe people would be like, yeah, you did the right thing, John. I did you the right thing. <laughs> yeah, it was the guy. first time I, I busted. <clears throat> the first time I met him, I ran out. I don't know what I had. A, it was what it was about and it made me want to attack him. But uh, I ran out the first time with a, some of the girls dancing on stage had like uh, umbrellas with LEDs all over them. Mm -hmm. And I grabbed one and I ran out and like whacked it over his head. And then I just kept going and slowly the the umbrella like disintegrated into like a flappy metal hand. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the pieces up upended and went down inside my finger and like all the way down the skin inside. And so I yanked it out and it started spraying. <laughs> Uh, like no, blood all over my trousers and I had like big white end. high tops on. I know, oh, you're back. Oh. Yeah. So no worries. Yeah, yeah, it sprayed out everywhere and went all over my high tops and I had to spend the rest of the show with a tourniquet on my finger. <laughs> that was how it started. And then I think he did something that threw an ice bucket on me or something. I thought next time I see him, he's getting the fire extinguisher. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, taught me, it taught me after that to stud, carefully study the bottle of a pressurized canister before you release it. <laughs> oh yeah and I look, yes I'm very sorry to everyone who uh, was inconvenienced by my accident <laughs> it's been a long time damn that's a good story well man um, <laughs> I don't want to yeah keep you up too much longer I know it's like later there than it is here um, but dude thank you so much for coming on the podcast I think it's been an amazing chat I didn't expect it to go in some of the directions it did and, yeah, it was, it was fun. <laughs> well thank, thank you uh, it's, it's, you're very welcome thank you for having me on it's been great awesome man all right, have a good one. Peace. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. Hello, hello.